Thank you, ladies. Thank you to our great God under whose wings we can safely rest. No matter how chaotic, how crazy the world may become, we can truly indeed rest and trust under his wings. All that he is, oh my, that in the ages to come, we will revel in his grace and we will never exhaust all that he is and all who he is. As we consider that, would you take your Bibles with me and turn this morning to Psalm 72. For this morning, we're going to look to that one in whom we can safely trust and his position and role as king. Psalm 72 is a prayer, beginning a prayer for Solomon. But as we keep on reading, we find out there's someone more here in view than just King Solomon. For we find here a description of King Jesus, a prophecy of who he will be, what he will be, and the kind of king he will be when he comes and reigns. Follow with me as I read through the whole chapter, and then we will come back and look at the significance of it. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. He shall judge thy people with righteousness and thy poor with judgment. The mountains shall bring forth peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. He shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass and showers that water the earth. In his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. He shall have dominion also from sea to sea, from the river unto the ends of the earth. They that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him, and his enemies shall lick the dust. The kings of Tarshish and of the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. For he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and needy and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. And he shall live, and to him shall be given of the gold of Sheba. Prayer also shall be made for him continually, and daily shall he be praised. There shall be an handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountain. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish 
like grass of the earth. His name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. All nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. Gracious God, we bow to you this day. You, the God of heaven and earth. You, the universal king over and above all things and everyone. We bow to you this day. And as we open your word, we pray that you would teach us. Help us to understand your ways, your plans. Help us to understand our duties, our obligations. And in all things, in this day, and from what we learn here this day, may you be glorified. May you be the one in whom we hope. And we pray truly, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And we seek you now and bow before you, our great God and King. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. What a beautiful psalm. Today is part of Independence Day weekend. And so I wish you all an early happy Independence Day. And as we celebrate Independence Day, I have another motto for you as we celebrate Independence Day and as we also look to these midterm elections this year. I've got a motto for you. You ready? Give us a king! Now, before you, you tar and feather me as a Tory, I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not talking about King George, and um, I'm not talking about Putin, and I'm not talking even about Donald Trump. I'm not talking about Biden. I'm talking about the king described in Psalm 72. Give us a king, this king. Let me put it in a phrase you might understand better. This motto is more a prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We look around at the political landscape of our nation and we scratch our heads. We wonder. We look back in history and we consider where we came from, how this nation, this land was formed, how our constitution and government was set up and established, and we wonder how far we have wandered from those principles. We are tempted to be discouraged. As we are tempted to be discouraged, I pray that as we look today at Psalm 72, we would consider, one, that we do have a civic duty and responsibility in our land in our nation to stand up for truth and for righteousness. And as we stand for truth and righteousness, let us not forget that in the kingdoms of men, the nations of men, there will always be imperfect rulers, imperfect men and women 
for we are all under the curse of sin. And so as we bemoan that fact, we need to do two things. First, be praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then we need to continue on persevering, seeking to appoint men who will rule, who as we see here described as the greatest king who will ever reign. Here we see in Psalm 72 a model laid down that no human, no human ruler can ever achieve. But yet there are things here we find that as we consider our ballots, we must consider the great king to whom they will all be responsible to, as well as us. I'm not talking about a theocracy. The theocracy that was established in the days of Israel is no more. We look for the reestablishment of it when this king described here in Psalm 72 comes back riding on a white horse and sets up his great kingdom. Then will be the theocracy reinstituted. In America, we don't have a theocracy, and I'm not talking about a theocracy. I'm describing that in this system we have that we seek to have men and women who are elected as rulers who are righteous. Righteous. Who, in a way, are modeling the king described here in Psalm 72. So my motto, give us a king. Well, that phrase might tingle your ears wrong for another reason, not just on this 4th of July Independence Weekend as we celebrate our independence from a king, but maybe you've heard that phrase, give us a king before. It wasn't a very good cry, was it? No, it was the nation of Israel rejecting God as her king and crying out, give us a king, and the key phrase they used, like all the other nations. See, what's sad is oftentimes when societies get into trouble, they do long for leadership. In fact, I'm deeply concerned in our nation that we are in trouble with lack of strong leadership, that we want long le strong leadership to the point of we want one to king over us. Our nation wasn't established to be that way, but it seems sometimes as if there are people who long for that. It happens and has happened in different parts of the world. We've seen it happen repeatedly. And there's a problem with that when we're talking about a king like all the other nations. There's a problem in that when we do not acknowledge the great king and God over all. Psalm 72 is a beautiful psalm describing a benevolent, great, eternal king. It's a psalm that I think verse 1 is indeed about Solomon. But as it transitions from Solomon, that Davidic kingdom, it goes to the greater son of David, King Jesus, and it describes his reign. Independence weekend. Let's think back to the days before the Declaration of Independence. You know there was a lot going on in the country at that time. The King of England, Parliament, was acting apart from authority that they had agreed upon through the constitutional or the, the colonial charters that they had with the different colonies. Those charters were being broken. 
other grievances the colonialists had against the king and against parliament. They had legal action and reason to declare independence and even to fight for independence, for their charters had been broken. And the grievances were horrific. There's a famous book, booklet, I should say, that came out shortly before the Declaration of Independence, and you've probably heard of it. Thomas Paine wrote a booklet called Common Sense. Now, there were a lot of other thinkers, there were a lot of other writers, there were a lot of other preachers who were crying out for independence, were crying out for a form of government in the land that would recognize the sinfulness of man and the need and priority of having checks and balances within the government. Reason for this is because there was nothing checking the king, and there were grievances from it. Thomas Paine is an interesting person. I don't think from his, the scope of all of his writings that he was one who actually truly believed the Holy Scriptures. But he knew his audiences, and he knew how to appeal to his audience. Keep in mind that the Declaration of Independence came shortly after what some have referred to as the First Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening was a revival in the American colonies as people were called back to a genuine faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, a relationship with Jesus, and an honoring of God's Word in their lives. Christianity was prominent in the colonies. Scripture was held in high regard. You had a people who were, for the most part, Christian. If not convictionally, which is what really matters, at least culturally. And Thomas Paine understood that fact, and in his little booklet, Common Sense, he appeals to Scripture to lay down the case for declaring independence from Great Britain, independence from King George. It's interesting. He uses some Scripture. He uses the case of Gideon when the people came to Gideon back in Judges, chapter 8, and wanted to set him up as king, and asked Gideon, will you be king and your sons after you? And it tells us in Judges chapter 8, verse 23, that Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you, neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. This was Gideon's response when they came to want to make him king. He said, no, the Lord is your king. It's kind of interesting that Gideon later names his son Abimelech, which means my father is king. Gideon had some issues there. Gideon's family definitely had some issues as there was some trouble in the land and a failure of leadership. But the problem was in society. It's interesting Thomas Paine recognizes that as he seeks to persuade people, and in his perspective, of the absolute illegitimacy of any monarchy. I'm not quite sure where Thomas Paine is at, and I'm going to reserve judgment because I can't sit down and have a conversation with him to clarify exactly what he said. But it seems that he categorically delegitimizes monarchy categorically based upon this situation as well as where we will turn next. Take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 8. He lays down for us here some aspect here and teaches us really what Samuel teaches us. But I'll tell you something. What Samuel teaches us, what the Lord tells us in 1 Samuel chapter 8, 
I don't believe delegitimizes monarchy categorically. Why? Well, because Psalm 72 speaks of a monarchy, the monarchy, the king of kings, King Jesus, who will reign as a monarch, a one ruler. The problem in human government is when sinful man rules unchecked as a monarch, one ruler. There lies the problem. And that was what was identified by Thomas Paine and so many others in the colonial era as they recognized and understood that there was one who, as described in Psalm 72, could reign as a monarch and it would be glorious. But here's the problem. In so much of human government, power that is absolute and power that is unchecked is oftentimes corrupted. And it turns not from benevolence, but to oppression. It turns not from kindness and grace and favor, but to cruelty, slavery. This is why, wisely and brilliantly so, when independence had been declared and when it had been secured, it was understood and known by the colonials that it was very important to establish a government with checks and balances to recognize the basic, most fundamental biblical principle under why the founding fathers wrote the Constitution in the way that they wrote the Constitution was because they recognized that sinful man needed to have checks and balances and sinful man needed to have accountability and be held accountable by the people governed. And that's the reason they set up the Constitution and they set up our form of government having the executive, judicial, and legislative branches as checks and balances of power. It's a good government. It's the best we've seen in the, on, the, on the earth. Well, we could argue the theocracy of the Old Testament, but that's not in present time. But at the same time, as we rejoice in recognizing our form of government as being such a great form of government, which it is. Part of the reason we esteem our government today and the way that it is set up, I, I hate to break it to you, is because man is sinful. If man was not sinful, we wouldn't need it. But because man is sinful, we need it. And we need a government that has checks and balances, and that is the reason why our founding fathers were brilliant and how they set up our nation in the Constitution. But it doesn't mean that monarchy categorically is wrong because we look for the one, the one ruler, the monarch who is promised to come, who has no sin. The most ideal form of government is actually a monarchy. But here's the key. There's only one qualified person to reign as monarch. And he is holy, and he is just, and he is perfect, and he is good, and he is loving, and he is all-powerful, and he is everything. 
and he is equally balanced in everything. And when you have that kind of person as the one ruler, the monarch, that's the ideal kingdom. And that ideal kingdom, that ideal ruler, is described for us in Psalm 72. And so this morning I have really, I really have three appeals to you as Christian people here in America this weekend celebrating Independence Day. The first is the motto I just shared with you. Let us pray earnestly. Let us pray sincerely. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Let us pray that that monarch, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come quickly in his time, that he will come and he will set up his kingdom and that his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven so that we can see Psalm 72 literally fulfilled before our eyes on this very earth. What a day that will be. Let us, as we celebrate our freedoms, pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Secondly, if you are in a position of authority, look to the great monarch. Look to the only legitimate, the only legitimately good, perfect monarch, Jesus Christ, and model your life after him. In fact, don't really model your life after him. Just let him live his life in you. Let him live his life in you. And then thirdly, as you consider the upcoming election, all of the upcoming elections, consider and evaluate your candidates in light of the greatest candidate. Well, he's really not a candidate because it's not going to take an election to get him in power. He's just going to come and he's in power. But evaluate your candidates. Evaluate your ballot box and compare them and ask and we'll talk about some of the specifics, but the first and foremost part of it is, are the individuals whom you are choosing and electing those who stand for righteousness? I'm not talking about people trying to establish a theocratic kingdom and implementing the Old Testament law. That's not that what I'm talking about. I'm talking about candidates, men and women, who will stand for righteousness. What's that mean? Will stand for what? is right. We have a civil responsibility and I believe a moral responsibility to be seen that we vote for and as a society elect such individuals. Be careful. It's kind of interesting if you look at what Tom Payne, Thomas Paine understood in 1 Samuel chapter 8 that we not be a people who are looking for the politicians, the legislators, the presidents, the judges, like all the other nations. And I think it's right of Thomas Paine, and I think it's right for us, as it was right for the children of Israel, to recognize the troubles that would come. There was a problem in the days of, of, of Samuel. In, in 1 Samuel chapter 8, Samuel is described as an old man, and his children did not walk in the right way. His children were wicked. The land had been ruled by judges in a theocracy with God as ruling king. But the rulers, particularly 
um, Samuel's children, who thought might be continuing as judges, were no way qualified. It was a disaster. Furthermore, the political scene was, was difficult. We had King Nahash, which literally means King Snake, has caused a lot of trouble. He has begun a campaign against Israel. They are afraid. They want someone not only to, to come and help them, they want someone to deliver them from this oppressive king on the outside. And here's the issue. They've forgotten who really is their king. In this case here, a theocracy. Their king is Jehovah. They reject him. In fact, God actually tells Samuel, Samuel, it's not you they've rejected here. It's me that they've rejected. And they've rejected the all-powerful God as their king, and they want a king, and the key phrase is, like all the other nations. See, Psalm 72, which we read here at the beginning, is not a king like all the nations. He is a king entirely different and distinct from all of the other nations. In fact, as we continue to read through some of the warnings that God gives, hey, if you pick out a king, if you choose a king, this is what will happen. And I want you to watch for a key word as we read this here in a moment. The key word take, 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 occurs over and over and over. It's interesting when you compare it to Psalm 72, you don't find take over there. You find abundant blessing. And in fact, what you find there is that when you see the others coming to this ki that king in Psalm 72, they are bringing gifts. Not, not taxes, gifts. But look at these warnings here. This is part of the reason why when I would say to you a good motto for us all to have, give us a king is maybe causing you to go oh, a little bit uncomfortable. I'd be a little bit uncomfortable, and I hope you're a little bit uncomfortable. I hope you're a lot uncomfortable because there are six warnings that were given to the nation of Israel who wanted a king. I think these six warnings actually are very important for us to consider as we even come to the ballot box. Is the one whom we're wanting to choose and elect uh, we don't call them kings, but is, or are they, kings in the sense of doing what these things are cautioned against. The ideal and benevolent king, the perfect monarch, doesn't behave this way. But look at how the kings of the nations around looked. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 10. And Samuel told all the words of the Lord unto the people that asked of him a king. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. Those are six things. One, he will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots, to be his horsemen, and some shall run before his chariots. He will appoint him captains over thousands and captains over fifties, and will set them to ear his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. Two, and he will take your daughters to be confessionaries and to be cooks and to be bakers. And three, he will take your fields and your vineyards, your olive yards, even the best of them, and give them to his servants. And four, he will take the tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. And five, he will take of your men servants and your maidservants and your goodliest young men and your asses and put them to his work. 
6. He will take the tenth of your sheep, and ye shall be his servants. Now, it's kind of actually troubling to me because there's things you see here described as warnings, and it's like, eh, that sounds like things I hear happening in America. And we don't have a king. It's hence the reason I say, when you go to your ballot box, consider who it is and what they believe and what their perspectives are. Now, this doesn't undermine the legitimacy of taxation. Even in the days of Jesus, Jesus recognized that there was render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and he used it as a lesson for all of them to render to God what belongs to God. Very important piece and lesson brought from that. Later, the Apostle Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, also laid down very importantly for us that there is a legitimacy to the powers that be, for they are ordained of God. And it even goes on to speak of how even the taxes that are due to them are due to them. But these kinds of aspects are really, as you can see there at the very end of verse 17, ye shall be his servants. This here, in a way, undermines the entire structure, the entire structure of how God created man. We are equal, created in the image of God. That's the reason why the Declaration of Independence started off acknowledging that fact. It's a fact. It's a God-ordained fact that we all are created in the image of God. We are His treasures. Now, you might think, well, aren't we supposed to serve God and He's the King? Yes, you're right. Our service, though, to Him is not an oppressed, forced requirement. In fact, we find out that our relationship actually with this king of kings, when we trust in him, is actually a relationship like family. We are actually joint heirs with him. We actually, as those who are in him, will rule and reign with him. And in this life and in the life to come, when we serve him, that service is flowing from a heart of gratitude not from the outside force of oppression. This is the kind of king. Nobody wants this kind of king. It was some of these kinds of issues that caused the colonials to declare independence from the king of England, and they used the fact of their colonial charters as the legal right to do so, and they defended that right. We celebrate today Independence Day when the declaration was made of independence. But in all of that, it's interesting to note that in that declaration, there is no declaration of independence from God. It's ironic to consider Thomas Paine's little booklet, Common Sense, that he wrote before the American Revolution and to compare it to a book he wrote during the French Revolution a few years later. He knew his audience in this one would be appealed to by Scripture, and a few years later, he knew his audience in France would not be appealed to by Scripture. And in fact, much of what he wrote in Rights of Man is godless and anti-God. It is humanism. Humanism is not what is independence. True independence, freedom, is an absolute dependence upon the God of heaven, the King over 
Now we think about that and we can't understand that because our impression of a king is like what we see here in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And so when we hear the idea, give us a king, or we hear the idea of... Um, we hear the idea of serving the God of heaven, we shudder because we have in our minds the idea of the kings like all the other nations as described here in 1 Samuel 8. But here's the news, everybody. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who is sovereign over all creation, and Jesus Christ, his eternal son, who will come to this earth and will set up an actual kingdom on this earth, is not like the king in Psalm, in, in, in 1 Samuel 8. He's not like the kings of all the nations. Turn with me to Psalm 72. Let's look at this king and see who he is. And to recognize that all kings, all government rulers who live, here in this psalm, it's particularly looking at the dynasty of David, but in application, it extends to all of what a real king ought to be like. And we're going to see in this that this is not just a human king. We're looking at an omnipotent king in here. We're looking at an eternal king in here. We're looking at some things that are absolute divine, which makes it distinctly different from it being David or Solomon or any of David's line, except for the greater son of David, Jesus Christ. And it begins with this prayer. Give the king thy judgments, O God, and thy righteousness unto the king's son. There's a lot of debate as to how this psalm came into being, of what the relationship of how its existence came about between David and Solomon. As I look at it, it's, there's good likelihood that Solomon and David were both a part of the writing of this and the passion of this as they recognized the kingdom transferring from one generation to the next do you see what this prayer is? This prayer is for the king to have judgment that are from God and righteousness that's from God. Now, setting aside for a moment the simple theocracy of the aspect of the nation of Israel, this principle is true for all civil government, all civil leaders. They need to have righteous judgment and god is the one who has defined what is righteous judgment and this prayer was a prayer for solomon i believe in its historical context but by extension a prayer for all who are in authority for all who are in authority that's why paul admonishes us as christians to pray for the king and for all who are in authority and he says that we may live a quiet and peaceable life Paul, I believe, had in mind Psalm 72. Because when our rulers, when our government is ruling with judgments that are righteous, there's a lot of fringe benefits that come automatically, even still in this sin-cursed land, even before the perfect monarch comes, as is prophesied and described here in Psalm 72. And so as we look at this perfect monarch, let it be a challenge to us in the way that we lead our families, the way that we lead in our workplaces, the way that we lead in our society, even in governmental positions, and especially when electing government officials and those into those positions, that we have this prayer and desire that they be 
that they have righteous judgment. Verse 2 transitions and speaks of that great king, King Jesus. He shall judge thy people, here describing the nation of Israel. We're looking forward to that theocratic kingdom being reestablished. He shall judge thy people and people of Israel with righteousness. Here he lays down the first and foremost model. Why do I say, give us a king? Why do I pray, thy kingdom come? Is because we need this monarch, this king, who shall judge with righteousness. Look at his relationship with the poor. Thy poor with judgment. He's going to go into more detail in describing that relationship later. Here, this is not a situation of exploiting the poor. Oh, how we often see that in different situations. I'm deeply concerned that much of our welfare system in America is not helping and strengthening the hand of the poor and needy, but is actually putting them in servitude. It's troubling to me. Is it righteous judgment? Is the poor being strengthened or just held under? A very important question to consider and to deal with in our own, own government. It's intriguing here in verse 3. It speaks of the mountains shall bring peace to the people and the little hills thy righteousness. Here in Indiana, we live in prairie land. It's flat. I used to have a friend who used to say, Indiana is so boring. It's so boring. It's just so flat, flat, flat. Well, it is. We sometimes have a hard time understanding hills and mountains, especially in describing the scripture, because we don't really have hills and mountains in this region. The hills and mountains of the promised land, the land of Israel, aren't like the Rocky Mountains. They're not even really like the Smoky Mountains. They're kind of actually more similar to the mountains on the way, way west side, the smaller mountains there in California. One of the interesting parts about mountains is that they were hiding places and they had dens of thieves and robbers. And as you would travel through, these thieves and robbers would come down from the hills and out of the mountains onto the highways, and it was actually a troubling problem as they would rob the people and then retreat back into their dens and hiding places in the hills and in the mountains. But look what the mountains will be like, and we, we might struggle and say, well, man, if only we had a king that could solve this problem. Right? Well, the mountains shall bring peace to the people, the little hills, by righteousness. What exactly that means, I don't quite know. But the aspect and the idea of the den of robbers and thieves being in the mountains, when King Jesus reigns, it won't be so. The mountains will be precious places where they will bring peace. Verse 4, he shall judge the poor of the people. He shall save the children of the needy and shall break in pieces the oppressor. This is indeed a model for all governments to follow. And here we will see that King Jesus, when he reigns, will truly be strengthening the hand of the poor and needy, and he will judge them and save them. And you notice, he will break in pieces those who seek to oppress them. There will be true justice. 
We hear a lot about social justice in political realms and circles. And again, is this political justice strengthening the hand of the poor and needy, or is it strengthening the hand of the oppressors? Notice here that those who would dare to oppress in the reign of King Jesus will be broken. I love verse 5. They shall fear thee as long as the sun and moon endure throughout all generations. Here we have a really key, key, key description that this is no just ordinary human king, for he is eternal, and he is one who will be feared, reverenced, honored, and feared as long as the sun and moon endure throughout every generation. Imagine with me that day when Jesus arrives in Jerusalem on that white horse and he establishes his kingdom. They say a new generation comes about every 30 years. That kingdom's going to last for a thousand years at which actually the sun and moon will dissolve. This earth will dissolve. In fact, there'll be a new heavens and a new earth created at the end of that thousand years when Jesus will deliver the kingdom up into the hand of his father. This kingdom... It will go from generation to generation to generation. We think of different monarchies even today. I know that the British monarchy is not quite a monarchy in the sense that it used to be, but we think of the Windsor dynasty. The Windsor dynasty is not going to last forever, just as it hasn't always been. They come and they go. Even these dynasties that are the longest of dynasties haven't lasted even a thousand years. Jesus, King Jesus, his dynasty, and the reverence and fear for him will not even, will last a thousand years, and then it will last forever. Unlike any other dynasty. Look at verse 6. He shall come down like rain upon the mown grass and showers that water the earth. This is a beautiful picture agriculturally. We think of, um, we, we often think of rain as inconvenient, don't we? Because uh, we're not farmers. But if you're a farmer, rain is very important. It's very important to be coming to water the grass, to be watering the plants, to bring forth abundance. This is, in, uh, this is opposed to the idea of no rain or hail destroying or never allowing for any harvest to actually come. This is speaking of a prosperity that will come in the land. I tell you, this is fascinating when you think about kings nowadays. You tell me, can a king order to reign in California? Nope. But we find out when we read other prophecies here that in this day when King Jesus reigns, the wilderness will become a fruitful place. He'll command it to reign in the wilderness, and it will bring forth abundance. But not just will there be agricultural abundance. There's something else that happens when a king who is righteous and just reigns, and particularly in the days when King Jesus will reign. Verse 7, in his days shall the righteous flourish and abundance of peace so long as the moon endureth. A few weeks ago, we talked about the ordinances of heaven. We talked about the moon. We talked about the sun. Here, the, the righteous will flourish. There will be abundance of peace. Think of throughout the world today of how many places there is not peace. There is not peace. 
But not so when King Jesus reigns. And you know, it's going to be an interesting day when that comes. That's why we pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Verse 8, he shall have dominion from sea to sea and from the river unto the ends of the earth. This is intriguing because it's a build upon on the promise made to Abraham that Abraham would inherit from the great sea, the Mediterranean Sea, to the river, the river Euphrates, and the river of Egypt. And we can see that description on a map. Here this is described from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. So take for a moment and come to the Euphrates River. Let's just take the Euphrates River as an illustration. And he reigns. His reign in this day won't stop at the Mediterranean. It's going to go all the way around the earth and come back to the other side of the Euphrates. His reign will be all through every, the ends of the earth, all the earth. Verse 9, they that dwell in the wilderness shall bow before him. Here again, what is known as the wilderness, these will be people who will come to him now because their wilderness, as it's prophesied in Isaiah, will flourish. And they will come and they will bow to him. But look at the last part of verse 9. His enemies shall lick the dust. If in that day when King Jesus reigns and you rise up as one who will be an oppressor, who will be one who will speak out against him. And by the way, at the end of that thousand year, there's going to be a whole lot of people who are unbelieving and will actually do this. And here is a description of what will be the end of them. They will lick the dust. Think about that picture. That is a person who is pushed down into the dirt. Dead. Jesus Christ will rule, we find in other prophecies, with a rod of iron. But it will be in this judgment of breaking the oppressors. It will be with righteous judgment. This here is a description. This is not a one who is going forth to conquer and to conquer for wealth or prestige or honor or power or lands. He already has it all. It will be those who will be exerting in pride, in rebellion to him in wickedness. They will lick the dust. Verse 10 and 11 speak of the nations coming, the kings of Tarshish. So, ah, there's other kings. He's the king of kings. The kings of Tarshish and the isles shall bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba shall offer gifts. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Here we see this is not the kind of sense of what we saw in the relationship between King George and the colonies. This is a situation in which we find a great king who is benevolent and good and righteous and just and the whole world coming to him, bowing before him. This is in gratitude as they are bringing him gifts and they are bringing him presence. And it's interesting because verse 12 actually goes on to illustrate why this is so. 
For, the need, for he shall deliver the needy when he crieth, the poor also, and him that hath no helper. He shall spare the poor and the needy and shall save the souls of the needy. He shall redeem their soul from deceit and violence, and precious shall their blood be in his sight. You see here what's being described as a people, and by the way, all of us people are poor and needy in one sense, who are being provided for not only justice but also in abundance. And, and these are the people who will rise from being poor and needy to great positions. They will be coming, and they will be offering these gifts, for it continues on here. Um, in verse 15, And he shall live, and to him shall be given the gold of Sheba, these gifts will come. Here, he doesn't need the gold. He doesn't need all of them. These are people who are receiving these because he owns the cattle on a thousand hills and he owns all of the gold and all of it wherever it's at, found and unfound. It's all his. And as he executes judgment and righteousness, the whole world will come to worship him because he is the one who holds their blood as precious. Think about that. When, when, you, when you go to the ballot box, do you think and ask, does this person hold the blood of people as precious? The application of that can go from a whole lot of ways how they view war, how they view the child in its mother's womb. The blood of these people in this king's eyes is precious. Hence, you see why they bring these gifts. Look in the middle of verse 15. It says, prayer also shall be made for him continually and daily shall he be praised. That's intriguing to me. I think here's another little application we can have. Do we pray for our rulers? This speaks of the great King Jesus. Prayers being made for him. And as I think of this in the greater context of Scripture, I find out that Jesus is an intercessor. And I wonder if this is not just prayers for him, but prayers through him. This great king, he's one who daily shall be praised. Verse 16, there shall be an handful of corn in the earth upon the top of the mountains. The fruit thereof shall shake like Lebanon, and they of the city shall flourish like grass of the earth. Here again, you can see a prosperity that is in the kingdom of this one. A handful of corn on the mountaintop. Again, most of us aren't farmers, and most of us don't come from a mountain region. But you wouldn't take the corn normally to the place where there was the least of profitable crop and spread seed in that place. You wouldn't do that. It wouldn't grow in that place. You would save that precious seed and plant it in fertile soil. You know, they talk about the bottom land as being the fruitful lands. That's where you would sow your seed. But what's being described here is that there is so much abundance, so much prosperity, 
so much agricultural fruitfulness that all the bottom land will be growing forth fruits, and the bad uplands, why? They're going to be, it says, the fruit there will be shaking like Lebanon. It's an illustration of it will be exceeding fruitful, exceeding fertile. The places we don't consider fertile will be fertile in that day. You'll be sowing in those places. And even then, sometimes this can be, we haven't experienced this in America because we have an incredible logistics um, system in America of, of transporting food. It scares me. You know, something happens to our logistics system and our trucking system and all of that, transportation in our country, because we have all of this system worked out. But you realize how fast in this city we'd all starve if there wasn't a coordination of good effort, who know that as a trucker, of all getting stuff moved into the places? Well, that was always been an issue. Here in America, we've experienced some of that prosperity, but in this day, that won't be an issue. They're going to flourish also as the grass of the earth. This is a great king. Look here. Look here now in verse 17. It focuses on him again. It says, his name shall endure forever. His name shall be continued as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him, and all nations shall call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only doeth wondrous things. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen. And amen. So I say, Give us this king, this king. May this be our prayer, that the whole earth be filled with his glory. As we elect government, of, as we elect government officials, may we evaluate them in comparison to this great king. When we are discouraged by the government system that we live in, may we be reminded and pray even ever so more earnestly for this king to come, for this kingdom to be established here upon this earth. We look for that day, and may we, as this ends, say amen and amen. And here's what's interesting. You see that little postscript there in verse 20? This is why David could be done in peace. The prayers of David, the son of Jesse, are ended. When he is discouraged and frustrated and praying through his days, where did he put his focus? Where was his mind? Way back in David's day, what, 3,000 years ago, he was looking to the day we still are looking for today. Sometimes we read these and we don't understand the significance of them and to realize really that there is nothing that has changed in any significant way from the days that this was penned 3,000 years ago. For we still look for the day when this will be fulfilled. And here is what is key. It is sure. That's what we learned this morning in Bible Hour with Daniel. Daniel spoke of this kingdom, the stone cut without hands, or not cut with hands, that comes and consumes and destroys 
obliterates all the nations and rises and becomes the great nation, the nation of the God, the King of Kings. It's here. It's here. It's a theme of all Scripture to look forward to. And as we are praying, let's not forget to pray. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So the title of my sermon this morning is, Give Us a King or Not. I wanted that in the subtitle. But yes, give us a king like this one. May our cry as we consider and long for a real king not be a king like all the nations. No, that's the or not. Give us a king. A king, as we see described in Psalm 72. And in these, may these be the theme, this be the theme of our prayers. Gracious God, we come before you and bow to you. We thank you for your word. We thank you here for this description of you, Lord Jesus, of you as you will reign as king. We pray. Even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus. Come catch us up. We look to that celebration with you and that feast and then to come with you to this earth to rule and reign with you. Oh, what a day that will be. We rejoice and look for it and long for it as we have read it and seen it described here in Psalm 72. Lord Jesus, I pray also for the kings and the rulers in our nation and in our world. May they acknowledge you as the one who ruleth in the kingdoms of men. May we all humble ourselves before you, recognizing that you are the God of heaven and earth, that you rule and reign supreme and sovereign. And we look to this day when you will not just judicially reign, but in de facto reign from Jerusalem. We long for this day. We pray thy kingdom come. We pray thy will be done. We pray that it be done on earth as it is in heaven. And may we keep this as our focus, that we be not discouraged, but always seek you. And may this be the end of our prayers, knowing that you are sovereign and good. We bow to you this day as we worship you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.